0: Chapter eight of the memoirs of Jacques Casanova Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All Libervax recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. The memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume two, Paris and Prison by Giacomo Casanova, translated by Arthur Matchin. Episode six, Chapter eight, Part two. I had remained about four hours with Mademoiselle Vézillon, consumed by the most intense desires, and I had had strength enough to conquer them. She could not attribute my reserve to a feeling of modesty, and not knowing why I did not show more boldness, she must have supposed that I was either ill or impotent. I left her, after inviting her to dinner, for the next day. We had a pleasant dinner, and her brother, having gone out for a walk after our meal, We looked together out of the window from which we could see all the carriages going to the Italian comedy. I asked her whether she would like to go. She answered me with a smile of delight, and we started at once. I placed her in the amphitheater where I had left her, telling her we would meet at the hotel at eleven o'clock. I would not remain with her in order to avoid the questions which would have been addressed to me, for the simpler her toilet was the more interesting she looked. After I left the theater, I went to sup at Sylvia's and returned to the hotel. I was surprised at the sight of an elegant carriage. I inquired to whom it belonged, and I was told that it was the carriage of a young nobleman who had supped with Mademoiselle Vezillon. She was getting on. The first thing next morning, as I was putting my head out the window, I saw a hackney coach stop at the door of the hotel. A young man, well dressed in a morning costume, came out of it, and in a minute after I heard him enter the room of Mademoiselle Vizion, courage! I had made up my mind. I affected a feeling of complete indifference in order to deceive myself. I dressed myself to go out, and while I was at my toilet, Vision came in and told me that he did not like to go into his sister's room, because the gentleman who had supped with her had just arrived. "'That's a matter of course,' I said. "'He is rich and handsome,' He wishes to take himself to Versailles, and promises to procure some employment for me. I congratulate you. Who is he? I do not know. I placed in an envelope the papers she had entrusted to me, and I handed them to him to return to his sister. I then went out. When I came home towards three o'clock, the landlady gave me a letter which had been left for me by Mademoiselle Vézillon, who had left the hotel. I went to my room, opened the letter, and read the following lines. "'I return the money you have lent to me with my best thanks. "'The Count de Norbonne feels interested in me, "'and wishes to assist me and my brother. "'I shall inform you of everything, "'of the house in which he wishes me to go and live, "'where he promises to supply me all I want. "'Your friendship is very dear to me, "'and I entreat you not to forget me. "'My brother remains at the hotel, "'and my room belongs to me for the month. "'I have paid everything.' Here it is, said I to myself, a second Lucie de Pazian, and I am a second time the dupe of my foolish delicacy, for I feel certain that the Count will not make her happy. But I wash my hands of all of it. I went to the Théâtre Francais in the evening, and inquired about Narbonne. The first person I spoke to told me, He is the son of a wealthy man, but a great libertine, and up to his neck in debts. "'Nice references, indeed. For a week I went to all the theaters and public places in the hope of making the acquaintance of the Count. But I could not succeed, and I was beginning to forget the adventure, when one morning, towards eight o'clock, Vizion, calling on me, told me that his sister was in her room and wished to speak to me. I followed him immediately. I found her looking unhappy, with eyes red from crying. She told her brother to go out for a walk, and when he had gone she spoke to me thus.' Monsieur de Narbonne, who I thought an honest man because I wanted him to be such, came to sit by me, where you had left me at the theatre. He told me that my face had interested him, and he asked me who I was. I told him what I had told you. You had promised to think of me, but Narbonne told me that he did not want your assistance, so he could act by himself. I believed him, and I have been the dupe of my confidence in him. He has deceived me. He is a villain." The tears were choking her. I went to the window so as to let her cry without restraint. A few minutes after, I came back and I sat down by her. "'Tell me all, my dear vision Unburden your heart freely, and do not think yourself guilty towards me. In reality, I have been wrong more than you. Your heart would not be a prey to sorrow if I had not been so imprudent as to leave you alone at the theater.' "'Alas, sir, do not say so.' Ought I to reproach you because you thought me so virtuous? Well, in a few words, the monster promised to show me every care, every attention, on the condition of my giving him an undeniable proof of my affection and confidence, namely to take a lodging without my brother in the house of a woman who he represented as respectable. He insisted upon my brother not living with me, saying that evil-minded persons might suppose him to be my lover. I allowed myself to be persuaded. Unhappy creature! How could I give way without consulting you? He told me that the respectable woman to whom he would take me would accompany me to Versailles, and that he would send my brother there so we would both be presented to the war secretary. After our first supper he told me that he would come and fetch me in a hackney coach the next morning. He presented me with two louis and a gold watch, and I thought I could accept these presents from a young nobleman, who showed me, so much interest. And I thought I could accept these presents from a young nobleman who showed so much interest in me. The woman to whom he introduced me did not seem to me as respectable as he had represented her to be. I had passed one week with her without his doing anything to benefit my position. He would come, go out, return as he pleased, telling me every day that it would be the morrow, and when the morrow came there was always some impediment. At last, At seven o'clock this morning, the woman told me that the count was obliged to go into the country, that a hackney coach would bring me back to this hotel, and that he would come and see me on his return. Then, affecting an air of sadness, she told me that I must give her back the watch, because the count had forgotten to pay the watchmaker for it. I handed it to her immediately, without saying a word, and, wrapping the little I possessed in my handkerchief, I came back here, where I arrived a half hour since. Do you hope to see him on his return from the country? To see him again? Oh, Lord, why have I ever seen him? She was crying bitterly, and I must confess that no young girl ever moved me so deeply as she did by the expression of her grief. Pity replaced in my heart the tenderness I had felt for her the week before. The infamous proceedings of Norbonne disgusted me to that extent, if I had known where to find him alone, I would have immediately have compelled him to give me reparation. Of course, I took good care not to ask the poor girl to give me a detailed account of her stay in the house of Narbonne's respectable procurers. I could guess even more than I wanted to know, and to assist upon that recital would have humiliated Mademoiselle Vision. I could see all the infamy of the count in the taking back of the watch which belonged to her as a gift, and which the unhappy girl had earned but too well. I did all I could to dry her tears, and she begged me to be a father to her, assuring me that she would never again do anything to render herself unworthy of my friendship, and that she would always be guided by my advice. Well, my dear young friend, what you must do now is not only to forget the unworthy Count and his criminal conduct towards you, but also the fault of which you have been guilty. What is done cannot be undone, and the past is beyond remedy, but compose yourself, and recall the air of cheerfulness which shone in your countenance a week ago. Then I could read on your face honesty, candor, good faith, and the noble assurance which arouses sentiment in those who can appreciate its charm. You must let all those feelings shine again on your features, for they alone can interest honest people, and you require the general sympathy more than ever. My friendship is of little importance to you, but you may rely upon it all the more because I fancy that— "'You have now have a claim upon it which you did not have a week ago. "'Be quite certain, I beg you, that I will not abandon you "'until your position is properly settled. "'I cannot at present tell you more, but be sure that I will think of you. "'Ah, my friend, if you promise to think of me, I ask no more. "'Oh, unhappy creature that I am! "'There is not a soul in the world who thinks of me.' "'She was so deeply moved that she fainted away. "'I came to her assistance without calling anyone.' and when she had recovered her consciousness and some calm, I told her a hundred stories, true, or purely imaginary, of the knavish tricks played in Paris by men who think nothing but of deceiving young girls. I told her of a few amusing instances in order to make her more cheerful, and at last I told her that she ought to be thankful for what had happened to her with Norbonne, because that misfortune would give her prudence for the future. During that long tete-a-tete, I had no difficulty in abstaining from bestowing any caresses upon her. I did not even take her hand, for what I felt for her was a tender pity, and I was very happy when, at the end of two hours, I saw her calm and determined upon bearing misfortune like a heroine. She suddenly rose from her seat, and looking at me with an air of modest trustfulness, she said to me, "'Are you particularly engaged in any way today?' "'No, my dear.' Well, then, be good enough to take me somewhere out of Paris, to some place where I can breathe the fresh air freely. I shall then recover that appearance which you think I must have to interest in my favor those who will see me, and if I can enjoy a quiet sleep throughout the next night, I shall feel happy again. I am grateful to you for your confidence in me. We will go out as soon as I am dressed. Your brother will return in the meantime. Oh, never mind my brother! His presence is, on the contrary, of great importance. Recollect, my dear Vézion, you must make Narbonne ashamed of his own conduct. You must consider that, if he should happen to hear that, on the very day he abandoned you, you went into the country alone with me, he would triumph, and would certainly say that he has only treated you as you have deserved. But if you go with your brother and me, your countrymen, you will give no occasion for slander. I blush not to have made that remark myself. We will wait for my brother's return. He was not long in coming back, and having sent for a coach, we were on the point of going, when Balletti called on me. I introduced him to the young lady, and invited him to join our party. He accepted, and we started. As my only purpose was to amuse Mademoiselle Vézillon, I told the coachman to drive us to Gros Caillot, where we made an excellent impromptu dinner, the cheerfulness of the guests making up for the deficiencies of the servants. Vézillon feeling his head rather heavy, went out for a walk after dinner, and I remained alone with his sister and my friend Belletti. I observed with pleasure that Belletti thought her an agreeable girl, and it gave me an idea of asking him to teach her dancing. I informed him of her position, of the reason which brought her to Paris, of the little hope there was of her obtaining a pension from the king, and of the necessity there was for her to do something to earn a living. Belletti answered that he would be happy to do anything, and when he examined the figure and the general confirmation of the girl, he said to her, I will get Lanny to take you for the ballet at the opera. Then, I said, you must begin your lessons to-morrow. Mademoiselle Vézillon stops at my hotel. The young girl, full of wonder at my plan, began to laugh heartily and said, But can an opera dancer be intemporized like a minister of state? I can dance the minuet, and my ear is good enough to enable me to get through a quadrille, but with the exception of that I cannot dance one step. Most of the ballet girls, said Balletti, know no more than you do. And how much must I ask from Monsieur Lani? I do not think I can expect much. Nothing. The ballet girls are not paid. Then what is the advantage for me? She said with a sigh. How shall I live? Do not think of that. "'Such as you are, you will find ten wealthy noblemen, who will dispute amongst themselves for the honor of making up for the absence of salary. "'You have only to make a good choice, and I am certain that it will not be long before we see you covered with diamonds. "'Now I understand you. You suppose some great lord will keep me?' "'Precisely, and it will be much better than a pension of four hundred francs, which you would, perhaps, not obtain without making the same sacrifice.' Very much surprised, she looked at me to ascertain whether I was serious or only jesting. Baletti, having left us, I told her it was truly the best thing she could do, unless she preferred the sad position of waiting maid to some grand lady. I would not be the femme de chambre, even of the queen. And figurate at the opera? Much rather. You are smiling? Yes, it is enough to make me laugh. I, the mistress of a rich nobleman who will cover me with diamonds. Well, I mean to choose the oldest. Quite right, my dear, only do not make him jealous. I promise you to be faithful to him, but shall he find a situation for my brother? However, until I am at the opera, until I have met with my elderly lover, who will give me means to support myself? I, my dear girl, my friend Belletti and all my friends, without other interest than the pleasure of serving you but with the hope that you will live quietly and that we shall contribute to your happiness. Are you satisfied? Quite so. I have promised myself to be guided entirely by your advice, and I entreat you to remain always my best friend. We returned to Paris at night. I left Mademoiselle Vizion at the hotel and accompanied Belletti to his mother's. At supper time, my friend begged Sylvia to speak to Monsieur Lani in favor of our protégé. Sylvia said that it was a much better plan than to solicit a miserable pension, which, perhaps, would not be granted. Then we talked of a project which was then spoken of, namely to sell all the appointments of ballet girls and chorus singers at the opera. There was even some idea of asking a high price for them, for it was argued that the higher the price, the more the girls would be esteemed. Such a project, in the midst of the scandalous habits and manners of the time, had a sort of apparent wisdom— for it would have ennobled, in a way, a class of women who, with very few exceptions, seemed to glory in being contemptible. There were at that time at the opera several figurantes, singers and dancers, ugly rather than plain, without any talent, who, in spite of it all, lived in great comfort, for it is admitted that at the opera a girl must need renounce all modesty or starve. But if a girl, newly arrived there, is clever enough to remain virtuous, only for one month, her fortune is certainly made, because then the noblemen, enjoying a reputation of wisdom and virtue, are the only ones who seek to get hold of her. Those men are delighted to hear their names mentioned in connection with the newly arrived beauty. They even go so far as to allow her a few frolics, provided she takes pride in what they give her, and provided her infidelities are not too public. Besides, it is the fashion never to go to sup with one's mistress without giving her notice of the intended visit, and everyone must admit that it is a very wise custom. I came back to the hotel towards eleven o'clock, and seeing that Mademoiselle Vézion's room was still open, I went in. She was in bed. Let me get up, she said, for I want to speak to you. Do not disturb yourself. We can talk all the same, and I think you much prettier as you are. I am very glad of it. What have you got to tell me? Nothing, except to speak of the profession I am going to adopt. I am going to practice virtue in order to find a man who loves it, only to destroy it. Quite true, but almost everything is like that in this life. Man always refers everything to himself, and everything, and everyone is a tyrant in his own way. I am pleased to see you becoming a philosopher. How can one become a philosopher? <laughs> By thinking. By thinking one must think a long while throughout life. Then it is never over. Never, but one improves as much as possible, and obtains the sum of happiness which one is susceptible of enjoying. How can that happiness be felt? By all the pleasure which the philosopher can procure why he is conscious of having attained them by his own exertions, and especially by getting rid of the many prejudices which make the majority of men a troop of grown-up children. What is pleasure? What is meant by prejudices? Pleasure is the actual enjoyment of our senses. It is a complete satisfaction given to all our natural and sensual appetites. And when our worn-out senses want repose, either to have breathing time or to recover strength, pleasure comes from the imagination, which finds enjoyment of thinking of the happiness afforded by rest. The philosopher is a person who refuses no pleasures which do not produce greater sorrows and knows how to create new ones. And you say that is done by getting rid of prejudices? Then tell me what prejudices are, and what must be done to get rid of them? Your question, my dear girl, is not an easy one to answer, for moral philosophy does not know a more important one, or a more difficult one to decide. It is a lesson that lasts throughout life. I will tell you in a few words that what we call prejudice every so-called duty for the existence of which we find no reason in nature. Then nature must be the philosopher's principal study. Indeed it is. The most learned of philosophers is the one who commits the fewest errors. What philosopher, in your opinion, has committed the smallest quantity of errors? Socrates. Yet he was an error sometimes. Yes, in metaphysics. Oh, never mind that for I think he could very well manage without that study. You are mistaken. Morals are the only metaphysics of physics. Nature is everything, and I give you leave to consider as a madman whoever tells you that he has made a new discovery in metaphysics. But if I went on, my dear, I might appear rather obscure to you. Proceed slowly. Think. Let your maxims be the consequence of just reasoning, and keep your happiness in view, in the end, you must be happy. I prefer the lesson you have just taught me to the one which M. Balletti will give me tomorrow, for I have an idea that it will weary me, and now I am much interested. How do you know that you are interested? Because I wish you not to leave me. Truly, my dear Vézillon, never has a philosopher described sympathy better than you have just done. How happy I feel! How is it that I wish to prove it by kissing you? No doubt because, to be happy, the soul must agree with the senses. <laughs> Indeed, my divine vision, your intelligence is charming. And it is your work, dear friend. I am so grateful to you that I share your desires. What is there to prevent us from satisfying such natural desires? Let us embrace one another tenderly. What a lesson in philosophy! It seemed to us such a sweet one. Our happiness was so complete that, at daybreak, we were still kissing one another, and it was only parted in the morning that we discovered that the door of the room had remained open all night. Aletti gave her a few lessons, and she was received at the opera, but she did not remain there more than two or three months, regulating her conduct carefully according to the precepts I had laid out for her. She never received Narbonne again, and at last accepted a nobleman, who proved himself very different from all the others for the first thing he did was to make her give up the stage, although it was not a thing according to the fashion of those days. I do not recollect his name exactly. It was Count of Trezin or Treon. She behaved in a respectable way, and remained with him until his death. No one speaks of her now, although she is living in very easy circumstances. But she is fifty-six, and in Paris a woman of that age is no longer considered as being among the living." After she left the Hotel de Bourgogne, I never spoke to her. Whenever I met her covered with jewels and diamonds, our souls saluted each other with joy, but her happiness was too precious for me to make any attempt against it. Her brother found a situation, but I lost sight of him. End of chapter 8, part 2